This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, I have the pleasure of having as my guests, Travis Todd and Chris Andrew of De La Boo Wines. These two guys have a really interesting backstory. I'm going to start, but I'm going to actually let them kind of fill in some of the blanks. And I'm going to start with Travis. Travis Todd spent 15 years in the food and beverage industry, including a number of years leading the wine program at the very prestigious Yellowstone Club in Montana. Now, over the years, a passion became a career, and his love for cool climate winemaking led him to the Willamette Valley in Oregon in 2017. He's co-owner and winemaker at De La Boo Wines. His partner, Chris Andrew, spent the last 10 years blending his time between the food and beverage world and the technology industry. Now, Chris trained in brick oven pizza making in Naples, Italy. Can't make that up. And he spent time as the sourdough pizza chef at E5 Bakehouse in London, where evidently only on Sunday could you get their pizza. He's now co-owner and I love this part. This is fantastic. Assistant to the winemaker at De La Boo Wines. Chris and Travis, welcome to the Vine Guy podcast. It is a pleasure having you here. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Chris, I'm, I'm going to start with you. I'm very curious. Here you are. You're in the tech world. Uh, you say that it's starting to blend between food and beverage. How did that happen? What What was your... Uh, glide path in, into this wine world? You know, I've always been drawn to the community in, in the food and wine world. I just love the connections that it, that it brings. And, you know, if, if, if we're working to eat and drink with family and friends, I, I wanted to find more time for those activities. And so I've always carved out time as I've been building technology companies to often, more often than not, donate my time. So I worked for free at that sourdough bakery out in out in London and uh, kind of earned my way into the opportunity to make their pizzas every Sunday. So I've always just tried to find that balanced approach to life of building technology companies, something I love to do, but also finding time to invest in the food and wine world with, with great people like Travis. Well, how did you get into the wine world? The, the pizza, I understand. I mean, everybody loves pizza. And I should probably tell everybody right now at the podcast that I got a special delivery just before we hit the record button for this episode. Uh, your wife brought over two of your pizzas to the house. We're doing this remotely, obviously, on, on a Zoom podcast. But I actually have the 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 privilege of eating your pizza while we're doing this podcast. You know, we, we think it pairs well with the wines, but how, how did I get into the wine world? Actually, I credit that fully to Travis here. So obviously the, uh, the assistant to the winemaker is a little tongue in cheek, <laughs> but it's, it's mostly true. Um, Travis and I met a, actually a decade ago now, decade ago, March out in Bozeman, Montana. And I was out there visiting a great friend that was in between jobs and uh, my friend actually kind of bailed on me. He had to work most of the week. And he's like, hang out with my friend, Travis. And I'm sitting here talking to this, you know, at the time, I don't think Travis will deny this, mostly a ski bum wasting away in Bozeman. And he takes me to this wine bar and the, just the gush of knowledge, like the enthusiasm for something was, I, I just, it was unrivaled. I was like, this individual knows so much about this and is just, so excited to share in it. It gave me an enthusiasm for it that I, that I never had. So 
you know, Travis has, has his own entry into the wine world, but mine, I credit to Travis and it's, it started a friendship and a company along the years. That's what I love about wine. So I guess Travis is your wine daddy. That's that's it. <laughs> I think he picked up the tab that day as well. <laughs> so Travis, he's just described you as a ski bum. How does a ski bum go uh, from ski bum to running the wine program at the Yellowstone club. I mean, probably one of the most prestigious clubs that nobody's ever heard of. Right. Yes, of course. I think so. Um, you know, the nice thing about wine is that most people drink it with dinner, which allowed me to ski about a hundred days a year. I kind of took it over, um, after they had made some changes and they said, Hey, Travis, you know, would you like to, to be in charge of the wine program? And I thought this has always been interesting. I've, always enjoy talking about it with, you know, with my tables uh, or any patrons that were in the bar. Everyone at the Yellowstone Club knows their wine. So it was an opportunity to learn and to kind of take something on and really make it interesting and not just come in, work my shifts, get back out skiing. It was, it really started to kind of become a thing that I latched onto. And, and I think anybody that's worked in food and beverage long enough will tell you that you start doing it because it's easy and good money and you, you keep going. And then the next thing you know, you've, you've found something that's really piqued your interest. And, you know, it would go from, if I didn't know the answer to a question, I would tell the people that were asking it that I didn't know. And I would, I would let them lead me in the right direction. And, and then I'd, you know, I'd run down to the cellar and maybe we didn't have the thing that they were looking for. Or maybe I couldn't find it. It was probably more likely <laughs> my first time in a million dollar wine cellar. So, you know, I would, I had a book and I'd flip through the pages and see the map and I'd say, Oh, well, this vineyard is right next to that vineyard. And so the soils are probably very similar and the aspect looks the same. And that's kind of how I, I learned in trial by fire of all these different regions and every, every one of the members has a different palette and you start to remember those things. And I still do remember who taught me about, you know, Northern Rhone Syrah. And I remember who taught me about Santa Barbara Pinot. And, you know, I, I found those things. And then when I would be looking for, for wines to buy in the program, I'd go, I know this guy likes that wine and he's going to be stoked when he comes in and says, Travis, pick me a wine, which eventually they all ended up trusting me. And I, I became this guy that, that could kind of, pair their taste with what they want and, and they would, they would trust me. I mean, it was an amazing, amazing opportunity. But I know who the clientele is made up of at the Yellowstone club. I mean, it's really uh, some of the most famous people in the entertainment industries. They're captains of industry and technology. I mean, you really put yourself into a deep end of the pool, right? That's your first job as <laughs> yeah. wine director at the Yellowstone club. Holy yeah. smelly. Uh, yeah. And, it was it, the neat thing. I can tell you a really good story of, of, of a person that came in that was a quite famous popular singer who knows plenty of people and, uh, and plenty of winemakers. And he came in and he said, you know, Travis, how'd you, how'd you start learning about this? And I said, and I play a little bit of music, like just enough to annoy my wife and dog. And, uh, you know, I said, it's, it's a little bit like music, you know, you know, you just start, you, you hear Eric Clapton and you know, it's Eric Clapton. D minor always sounds sad. And he said, well, I write a lot of songs in D minor. What would you say the D minor of, uh, what would you say the D minor of wine is? And, you know, I said, well, it's, it's gotta be Pinot Noir, you know, it's got, it's, it's got a, it's got soul and bite and can be, uh, you know, when used in the right way, it can really be inspirational, but it was kind of a, a, a fun conversation. And, and in all honesty, I was helped out in a great way by the fact that the people that bought wine at that place before me 
filled that cellar up with everything. And there was no, there were no chumps in the cellar, you know, if I couldn't find anything and I just reached blindly into a bin on the wall and pull it out, it was going to be amazing. So I'd say the training wheels were, were big. I think the other part is that you just have to listen and you listen to people and you know, I'm, I never tried to fake that I knew any, anything more than them. And I, it was the first place where I could really be a sponge. And a lot of people there already know about the many different regions and, and famous, incredible wines of the world. So very cool. It sounds like your singer uh, would make a great Jack Black movie. Wines in the key of D minor. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so, Chris, I'm going to bounce back to you for a second. You know, you talked about this journey uh, that you had with food and wine and friendship. Was there a particular wine in your experience or along the way where you had an aha moment? Was there that wine where you took a sip and went, okay, yeah, this, I get it. This is the stuff. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I spent a number of years in San Francisco and you know maybe a non-traditional entry point, but it was that um, Tartine Bakery, Tartine Manufacturer. They they make some incredible sourdough bread, so that the theme of bread making continues here. But I was at their bar with a friend who was really pushing me on some funky natural wines, and so pretty non-traditional path in for me um, by a maker called Jolie Laid out of out of California, and I had I had one of their natural orange wines. And I was like, I don't know that I like this, but this is so different that I've got to start going down this path of trying a bunch of different things. And so, you know, while some, it might be a a Syrah or a Pinot or a Chardonnay, I can't even describe what I tried first that really tipped me into a world of like, you know, the, the beer world is a little bit boring. There's a lot to discover here and I'm going to continue on this path. And you know, I, I wouldn't have expected to be making some with a friend, you know, I think that would have been six or seven years ago that I, that I first tried some of those, but that, that would be it for me. Wow. Okay. So this is weird. You're the second person in two days that I've talked to that orange wine was their entry into a love of wine. And that's the first I've ever yesterday was the first time I'd ever heard anybody say that that was the path they took. And now uh, you're the the second in, in uh, two days. So there's definitely something to that. I think that's really very cool and, and, and very different, very non-traditional. And I almost never drink orange wines now, which is kind of the irony of it. So I, I do like that. It's a, it makes you think it's like, I, I don't think I can drink a whole bottle of this or maybe even right. finish the glass, but like, right. this is really, really interesting. And I just want to learn more about this. I think we should have a separate podcast on orange wine. It's not that I'm an orange wine hater. I just, I'm one of those people that have never really gotten into it. And yeah. uh, I, I think it would be a really fascinating uh, rabbit hole to, to jump down. Yeah. So what about you, Travis? What was your aha moment with wine? People everywhere are going to cringe when they hear this aha moment. Uh, oh no, more orange wine? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I just, I would say that this is a, a, a very, um, my aha moment is different from a lot of other people's because of the wine that I was luckily exposed to. So I kind of already touched on earlier when we were discussing before the podcast started, but the Southern Rhone wines was a, was where I kind of had read about how, you know, those, those, those wines are Syrah Grenache based generally. And so I kind of started training my palate to know what the acidity of Syrah or Grenache was bringing. And then the, the kind of the tannin structure of Syrah and how those things work together. And I would 
and they're inexpensive when you're not making very much money. So I would take those two things together and say, I taste one one day and it was like eight bucks, you know, uh, like Jaboulet Parallel 45, I think was probably one of the earlier ones. And sure. then I'd get a Perrin family and then taste that and the, and the you know, it'd be 60 Syrah, 40 Grenache. And then I'd taste another one that was 60 Grenache and 40 Syrah and then taste them back to back and go, oh, I see how this is working out together. And so that that's the elementary version. The aha moment that really came was after, you know, d- serving during Opera Ski, somebody ordered, you know, some Northern Rhone coat roti from Igugal that was um, Landon, Turk, and Moulin as a flight. Um, three bottles that collectively were, you know, more expensive on the wine list uh, than probably what I made in a month. And, you know, he said, Hey, grab a glass. Like this is, this is super cool. Uh, and this is going to be cool. And he'd never had them either. And he said, Oh my gosh, these, these are on the wine list. Um, I'm skiing at the Yellowstone club. Like this is a great day. This is a celebration moment. Like awesome day of skiing, Travis, bring me these wines. And I remember somebody came and said, Hey, Travis, this guy wants to get some wine. It was like opera ski when you're in between shifts. And, you know, you go, okay, I'll go get it. And then you come up and, and that's what he says. And you go, oh my gosh, every moment here is amazing. And there's always something like this around the corner. And so I brought those wines up and we tasted them. And I mean, it hit me from tasting, you know, eight to $10 bottles of wine from Southern Rhone to, to that, like, especially while you're learning, it was like, bam. I mean, I get it now you know, that it was, it was, it really was one of those things where you see overpriced bottles or, or incredibly highly priced bottles. Maybe I shouldn't say overpriced because I, when you're not paying for it, it's worth every penny. I can tell you that. <laughs> you know, so. you kind of went from a hot air balloon to a Learjet buddy. Yeah. yeah it was, I mean, uh, and, 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 and those, that kind of sums up these fortunate opportunities that I've had certainly. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful every day to think about those kinds of things and moments that happen. And, and, uh, you know, I just think if you have moments like that, you gotta, you gotta lean in and say, man, how do you do this? So here we have, uh, Chris, who's <laughs> got, got hooked on orange wine and then, uh, Travis, you know, you're talking about the Holy Trinity of Northern Rhone, the Lala's as we affectionately call them. So there's two very diverse entry points into wine. You've, you've told me a little bit how you guys got together, but what made the two of you decide to start uh, this winery together? I mean, it's one thing to be buddies and, you know, hey, it's great seeing you. Let's open a bottle of wine to actually saying, you know what, maybe we can do this. And, and Travis, I'm going to actually swing back to you because you're the winemaker. How did you go from, well, I think we know how you went from ski bum to <laughs> wine director. Uh, <laughs> surreptitiously, how did you go from that actually into making wine? Well, I would give the disclaimer first that I'm not sure wine director was ever my actual title. They just said, be in charge of wine. And uh, I would say that the wine directed me um, to anyone out there that's listening Uh, that worked with me that that, that is thinking uh, that guy was not the director, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, which there's probably plenty. Um, Anyway, so I, they do this, this program in Oregon called Oregon Pinot Camp, which is for, um, I'll give the short version if you've heard of it, but it's for people that work in the wine industry and the hospitality side, the food and beverage side to come to Oregon, learn a lot, 
you tour around to a bunch of wineries. Um, I mean, and when I say tour around to a bunch of wineries, you taste thousands of wines from Oregon and they really show you kind of everything that they're thinking about. And, you know, it was the closest version of that. And, and they, they do a thing that's similar in Napa that's I think called the uh, ambassadors um, to Napa Valley. And anyway, there's, there's really these unique things, these programs that, and that was the first time I came and I, I came out and I got to taste all of these incredible wines. And that was in 2014. I thought to myself, Hey man, this is really cool. And I wasn't a certified SOM. I'd done the first level and I was kind of studying. They hired a um, new food and beverage director at the Ellison club who helped me get to this. And she had worked out here at Soder Vineyards. And she said, Hey, I, I know a lot of people like if you're interested in this and you seem like a, like you would really love the production side, you, I can get you a job as a, as a harvest intern. And so so she, she made a couple phone calls and I got a job. I got a harvest internship and I came out here in 2014 and just loved it. And the nice thing was that at the Yellowstone Club, we had the summer season and then the winter season. And then there's like a mud season in between where you wait for the, with the snow to build up. And so it worked out perfectly. And I, I came out here, I fell in love with the work. I mean, it was, it was just so fun and so amazing. And I got to ask so many questions it was really an amazing experience. And, and I, I went back and kept working and I thought, you know, I, that was like, that was such an amazing eye-opening experience. I'd love to get back there and think about it. And so number one, cool climate wines, as we say, as Chris and I call it, you know, it's not food friendly, it's dinner friendly. You know, the, the idea of sitting around and pouring wines for, for people for, for hours at a time uh, was kind of the inspiration. And I, I just really love that aspect of Oregon it seemed like a great place where there's a great community of people where you could be at, you know, the bitter monk, a little bar in McMinnville and see like seven other winemakers. all I've, talking I've, to each other. I've been there all, you know, it, the, the collaborative aspect of, of Oregonian winemaking is the most inspiring part. And, you know, it seemed like a good place where there was just this kind of little microcosm microcosmic bubble of, sharing of information and everybody knows that you're all kind of doing the same thing, but what you're doing is different and, and you guys could take the same grapes and it, it's going to turn out different. And it's just going to be cool, whatever you do. So I kind of leaned into that. And my now wife said, you know, if you want to get out of the restaurant business, like what would you want to do? I said, I'd, I'd make wine in Oregon. So um, I have no idea how to do that. I have no idea how to like really break in. And she said, well, let's do it. And she started applying for jobs, got a job at Domain Serene, actually. She worked at the Yellowstone Club as well. So she she was a she was the, the way that we got here. And then I ended up running into the cellar master where I was a, where I was a harvest intern. And he said, we're looking for somebody for full time. So I started at I just started being a seller in a seller assistant kept going and just in the same way that I learned in the Yellowstone club, I just kept listening and kept talking to people and meeting people. And with, without lack, with, with a lack of formal training, enthusiasm and hard work, I guess, go a long way. So assistant seller master, AKA seller rat. Yeah. Was, yeah. Seller. I don't even know if I had a title when I started, I think it was just guy who does whatever someone says, which, which was fine. And it was, it was, it was delightful. I mean, I, I really, I've, I've learned, an incredible amount from an incredible group of people um, all along the way. So, so Chris, how did you get inserted into this? I mean, what made you decide that this is something that you wanted to do? I mean, to, you know, here you are in the tech world. 
I have a feeling that you really were leaning in hard towards the sourdough pizza world as well. And at some point you're like, yeah, let's make wine. (laughs) You know, um, when I was out in the Bay area in San Francisco, my, I think, you know, people speak about Napa and Sonoma. My, My wife and I's favorite place to go was out to Anderson Valley, Boonville, the Mendocino coast, just love the climate and environment out there. And, you know, when I was up in Oregon visiting Travis over the years, I was like, this really reminds me of, of that. Just the, the foggy, cooler climate, loving the wines up there. And, you know, for me, you know, I've heard, I've heard the definition of success be, if you can be doing things you love with people you love by the age of 40, like do more of that. And for me, I love building things. I love that, that early experience of like, how do we do this? Like, you got to form the LLC. You got to talk to the alcohol board. You got to do the DBA. You like, you got to build a brand. Like just that is a fun part of whether it's technology or pizza or wine. And so Travis and I had stayed in touch over the years and um, actually it was probably three years ago, 2018, 2019, I was up there um, with some family and we were actually throwing a sourdough pizza party. Travis brought a bunch of wines he was making. And I was like, I think it's just time to do this. Like, let's, let's start making a brand. Let's start making wines that we really care about. And let's start sharing that experience with those around us. I'm, I'm really drawn to the idea that, you know, accessible doesn't mean it's easy, right? Making something accessible doesn't mean that like, this is simple to do, but we can share the story of, you know, knocking on doors at farms and, and vineyards that we really respect and trying to buy our first ton of grapes and striking out the first year, not finding anybody that was willing to sell us the amount that we wanted, but you just start and you might fail. The first batch might not taste good. I'm sure Scott, you'll, you'll tell us honestly here, but to be here, you know, a, a couple of years in with our, our first batch of Pinot and Syrah, like that, that's, that's super joyful to me. It's super fun to work with people that are passionate about what they're doing and then get to share it with people that, you know, we want to have an impact on. So that's, that's what brought me into it. I don't come from a deep background in the wine world, hence, hence the orange entry point, <laughs> but you know, I've, I've come to deeply respect the craft and the pursuit and, and love that blending of community and building things with people I care about. Wow. To be young and fearless, you guys, <laughs> this is amazing. So I'm going to ask, what does De La Boo wine mean? What is it? I, I, why De La Boo? Yeah, you know, De, De La Boo stand uh, translates literally to of the mud. In of French. the mud, okay. Of the mud, and you know, it's a bit tongue in cheek. I, I, it pays a little respect to the French. They like that kind of thing, but it's also like this is actually really simple. It's it's it starts from the mud, and it's like if you pick the grapes and you don't do anything with them, they're going to turn to vinegar. So it's kind of like you're inserting yourself at the right points to have the impact that you want and, and create what you want, and so. We're really drawn to that that phrase. The simplicity of De La Boue really means a lot to us. And there's a longer phrase in French, which is nostalgia De La Boue, which means a longing for simpler times, a longing for just going back to the basics. Um, and I think Travis and I were both really drawn to that phrase. For, for me, that's the experience of you know, having a three or four hour dinner with family and friends with no stresses, where the wine keeps flowing and, and the jokes keep coming. Like, that is awesome. Those are the moments that I just want more of in life. And for me, Nostalgia de la Boo really captures that. So that's, that's how we landed on the brand. And is this 2019 the first vintage of de la Boo? 
It is. You're you're literally looking at but an unlabeled bottle that is literally fresh off the production lines. We bottled it in November of 2019. Um, my wife is an incredible visual artist, Gretchen Andrew, and she has helped us with the labels and some of the branding. So, so the, the futures and pre-sale has been going on for a few months, which has been incredible from a support perspective, but we'll be doing our first deliveries and shipments here in a month or two. So you're, you're literally looking at one of the very first tastes outside of you know, Travis and I. <laughs> well, if, if Gretchen designed the label of the bottle I'm holding, it's in silver Sharpie. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's the handwritten winemaker touch. <laughs> I love it. So, uh, Travis, here you are making wine now. So you've gone from seller rat <laughs> or guy who will do whatever he's told to do in 2017 to now making your first vintage in 2019 of, of your own wine. That's a pretty fast track. Is there something in your DNA that kind of helps you prioritize how you, the, the winemaking techniques or how, how have you developed this ability to do this? I think having spent time in the, in the food and beverage industry was great because it, it really, it helped me kind of find getting to taste amazing things was, was, was huge. I mean, I don't think you can do it without at least having a grasp of your own palate. I, I wouldn't say that I have an incredible palate. Uh, you know, I have a palate and I listen to it and I've tasted some things that are pretty good. And I kind of just follow that, you know, there's so much that you can dive into that, that this whole project has just been an amazing litany of how do we do this? Then we figure out how to do it. And then, you know, kind of picking it apart in that way. And, you know, the things that you learn along the way from other people um, have helped guide this and just put your head down and do it. I mean, I, I've always loved the quote of, you know, successful people are too busy working to worry about if they're successful. And, you know, we always kind of just put our heads down and said, well, if we're going to do it, let's try to do it. And, you know, the things that you learn along the way from other people are, are always, you know, Hey, if you do this, it'll, it'll change. And starting out with, from a base point of, well, I know how to get fermentation going, maintain it, age it in barrel, let the wine speak for itself. I just tried to listen along the way the whole time. And, and sometimes that was to the actual product that we were making. Um, does it need to stay in longer in the barrel? Does it need to, you know, there's all these, there's a continual decision-making series. And that, that I think is the, is the most fun part about winemaking is listening to the product and saying, what's the best thing for this right now? And that's the only, that's the, the kind of the thing that drives us the entirety of the way, you know, what, when, when do you pick it? Is that the right time? Yes, maybe. No. What do you do now? How do you continue to answer the questions that the, the product is actually asking you? Um, you know, that's kind of our mentality of it all. And yes, it's a, it's, it's very quick, but at the same time in 25 years, I'd rather say that I have 25 years of winemaking experience than 23 because I waited. Right. Well, I have to say, I don't think you could be in a better location in the world than in Willamette Valley, where you touched on something about uh, it's very collaborative. I, I have spoken to Josh Bergstrom and Dick Shea and Ken Wright and so many other really popular winemakers in Willamette Valley, and they all say the same thing. We are a community of sharing. We are very collaborative. We don't hold anything back from each other. 
we share ideas, we share equipment. It, it is really great that you're doing this there uh, because I think if you're going to jump into the deep end anywhere, you might as well do it where there are other people who will uh, jump in with you. Yeah, I agree 100%. This is, a, this is an amazing community of winemakers and not just winemakers, but wine industry professionals. The, the, the entirety of the Oregon wine industry is one that really leans into and on each other. And it, it's, it's truly inspiring. And I, I couldn't be happier, you know, four years in after moving here to just be a part of it. It is a, it is a really unique thing. So I know we're about to taste the 2019. And I know this may be premature because this 2019 is your first vintage. But do you have a vision for the future? Do you know where you're going to go after this? Yes, I think so. Our focus is always on vintage and site expression. And I think that when you look at the 2019 wines as a whole, the 2019 growing season was, was very cool by almost all metrics. Um, and so those wines are the way that they are. They are high acid, maybe potentially panned by critics, but they represent a thing, a journey that, that was taken that 2011 and 2007 were, were big vintages that I learned about from tasting a really unique cellar. And those were the wines that always stood out to me. The nice thing about the 19s is that it was a, it was a terrifying vintage and I freaked out so many times. I, I called Chris. I mean, it was, a, it, was a, it, was, it was so difficult. And especially for your first vintage, but you know, at the same time, it was, it was, uh, we made it through and then came along 2020, which was, you know, as we all know, even better. Um, <laughs> so for the future, you know, we are trying to expand a little bit. We're bringing Chardonnay into the realm this year. We've got some Chardonnay from Gregory Ranch, which is an amazing, amazing vineyard site in the Yamhill Carlton district. And then we also got Pinot Noir from Gregory Ranch, which we were, you know, just very fortunate to, I don't know how I backed into that, but uh, I'm very thankful to Dr. Gregory for, for agreeing to sell me some fruit. So another single vineyard, Pinot Noir, and then we've doubled up the amount of Syrah that we're making. So our future is to let those sites speak for themselves. And I know that, that people say that all the time, but there is a very unique thing that happens here. The, the Shehala Mountains Pinot Noir is, is so light and it's high elevation site. And it just is a, is a really elegant, beautiful wine. And tasting Gregory Ranch right now in the barrel, I mean, that is a powerful, moving wine. And they're, they're very, very different. And, you know, maybe in a year you have me back and we have, we have both of them together uh, to, to really explain it. People just have to take my word for it right now. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really fun thing to, to keep trying to do. And, and we do very small amounts. How many bottles is your first vintage? So the 2019 Pinot Noir is about 50 cases. Okay. That is yeah. Small. That is I small. Mean, so the unique thing, I guess, I guess I could tell this story. The, uh, we were supposed to get two tons and the 2019 vintage, there was a lot of rain at the end of the season. Uh, so, so some swelling of the grapes, some falling off. The birds were absolutely horrible. Even with the bird netting up, I was supposed to get two tons and I got one. And I'm standing there, I'm calling Chris going, oh, what, what are we going to do? This is, this is just, you know, this is terrible. And so I ended up talking to an, another grower in the gorge and that's how we kind of backed into the Syrah. He said, I got a ton of Syrah for you. Cause Chris and I had decided let's make two tons, see if we're any good at this and then keep going. And so the Syrah, we ended up getting a little bit more than, than one ton. Um, 
as the growers are a little heavier than, than we thought. But uh, we ended up with 100 cases of Syrah and 50 cases of Pinot Noir. And then now we're growing to double that. And I guess the other portion of the future is that the site that this Pinot Noir came from, Vista Grande Vineyard, um, I bought from for two years. And Doug and Kate Christensen, who are the owners uh, and have farmed it themselves, it's a small five-acre site. They asked if if I'd be interested in farming it myself. So we've now taken on farming into this whole thing. And of course and, you have. Uh, yeah, of course, yeah, exactly. So yeah. like, oh, I'm starting to figure out this wine thing. Why don't we throw another? <laughs> Why not? It won't take too long. I'm really afraid to ask this, Travis. Have you ever farmed before? You mean other than tomatoes in my backyard? No. Yeah. Okay. But, I didn't think so. <laughs> um, in no, keeping with this, the, is, in keeping with the Travis theme. <laughs> Jump in the net appears, right? Isn't yep. that, I think, what they say? So, yep. you know, that, that's been a really fun thing. I mean, I was out pruning today. Uh, we have two and a half acres that we're taking care of. And it's really going to be a unique thing to start going. We want to move in that direction of going from the vine into the bottle because it just, it allows you to, to really intimately know the, the, the product even more. I can't wait to try these wines. And so we are now at the point, which is my favorite part of the podcast. What's in your glass? So I should preface this by saying wine is an incredible maker of friends. I got to tell the quick story before we pour these wines that a couple of weeks ago, I put out on a local kind of a chat room, if you will, of my new neighborhood here in Park City that I just moved here and I had some free moving boxes. And the next thing I know, I get an email from Chris saying, Hey, you're a wine guy. Well, my partner and I are making wines. I would love for you to try them and tell us what you think. And that's how this podcast came about. And the next thing I know, Chris is knocking on my door. He drops off two of the two bottles. And I have to say, it's wonderful because in the age of this global pandemic, being able to sit down on a Zoom call and actually enjoy the wines with the people who made them is very rare. And so for me personally, guys, this is a treat. And so I just wanted to say thank you. And by the way, Chris, the uh, the added bonus of your pizza that showed up today, uh, I really got to say that I'm excited to try both the pizza and the wine. So guys, which one do you want to start off with? I think Pinot Noir is probably the best one to okay. start off with. All right. And I have my burgundy glass for the occasion. Wow, look at that color. Oh, my gosh. That is just beautiful. That is almost like a burgundian garnet color. Wow. And the nose. I mean, I'm just the first thing that pops up to me are florals, huge floral notes. Like I'm just getting violets and rose petal and... And a little, oh, a little, a little tea, a little, like a little black tea is in there as well. And God, I wish we had smell a vision on this thing. Uh, <laughs> I did too. <laughs> that is, it's the perfume on this nose. I just want to dab it behind my ears. I would say thank you very much. I guess maybe you should taste it first. Yum. <laughs> you know scott i have to tell you that i've been sitting here all day like oh man this guy and i know he's tasted so many great ones what is this is the like you know not a lot of people have tasted this so every wow. time somebody that, that i'm with someone opens a bottle i'm my heart is racing and i know that there's 
where are we going to send these out to people all over the place? And I'm not going to, every time it's kind of like, if I could have my eyes closed, uh, I'm, I'm honored that, that you're enjoying uh, it. Uh, well, well so first of all, I am a very honest communicator of, of wine criticism. If, if there's something, I mean, I, I would never tell you, oh my God, that's terrible. I, I might say, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but I'm not going to say that this is interesting. This is beautiful. This is a beautiful, this is a clean wine. This is a gorgeous wine. It's got purity to it, Travis. This wine is purity to it. And, and what I really love about it is the elegance of it. It's super feminine. That's not, not a sexist term, <laughs> but it's very elegant mm. in the mouth. It's got great acidity. It's beautifully drinkable, but it has this lovely, almost seductive, bright fruit in it. You know, bright red cherries, a little bit of touch of cranberry in there that's, you know, kind of brings a little tartness to the party. So you're like, okay, I get it. I hear you. I feel you. Uh, and it's just getting me right in the, in the back of the, uh, the cheeks there. And it's just gorgeous. 2019 was a very cool vintage. It was very challenging. And Travis, I think that you are going to be a great winemaker. And that's not hyperbole. I, I don't know how you did it, brother. You have no business doing this. You have. Uh, I'm, you, you just, I'm humbled. Um, you're a freaking cat. If people could throw I, you I, out of a window and you were going to land on your feet. I don't know how uh, or why. You know, being at the Yellowstone Club and then falling into this gig at Willamette. And now you're, uh, you're pruning vines and you're making wines like this. You know, oh. let, let, let me talk up Travis for a second because you asked oh, no. why we started, Scott. When you tried, when I tried some of his wines a few years ago, I was like, I'm, I don't have a discerning palate, but these, these are beautiful. Oh, well, you know that, Chris, you started on orange wine. I so. know, I know. I'm not hiding it. I, I could have made up a story for you, Scott. I'm not going to pretend to be somebody I'm not. And I was like, these are beautiful wines. And I shared them with a number of friends in Oregon. I'm like, these are incredible. And one of the things I've always loved about Travis is just like the depth, like whether it's books or music or wine, you just you can talk forever. And I think that's what we want these wines to be about. That's what we think friendship and community is about is extending, you know, an invitation to just spend a lot of time with something. And it's, it's been a an absolute joy to be a small part of building it. It's a lot of fun. Chris, that's well said. I'm, I'm very uh, impressed with this wine, particularly for your verse vintage. You know what, Tra Travis, can I give you a little bit of advice? You should stop now because I just don't know how you're going to top this one. <laughs> I'm, speech, I'm speechless. I, I, I appreciate your kind words. I don't, I don't know what to say. Uh, well, I'll tell you what to say. Tell us what to say. I quit, I guess, is what I did. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. So this wine is from Vista Grande Vineyard, which is ranges between six and 700 feet elevation in the Chehalem Mountains. It's a really cool climate site. And the block that we get fruit from and are farming now is slightly north-facing, which means it is continuously struggling to ripen, but it comes with that beautiful acid structure. I mean, when I found the site, there's, you know, I looked around for places to get, to buy grapes from. And it was one of those places where you just drive to and you say, this kind of speaks to me. Doug and Kate were incredibly gracious and nice. And, you know, he said, Hey, you know, we have, we have this ton of grapes and 
aside from my full-time wine gig, I actually had to go and pick those grapes myself on my only day off of harvest. So that, that was a very fun experience. So, you know, the site is just, it's, it's east-west facing rows, which has always been my favorite. And almost every winery I've ever been to when I start tasting wines, they, you know, the ones that I like without hearing anything else, then, you know, the server comes around or, you know, whoever it may be and says, Oh, you know, okay. These are, this is the East facing. And I just always end up loving the East facing wines, uh, the East facing sites. For me, this, this vineyard is, is a mix of Dijon clones and Pomard. I was going to separate everything out, but we only ended up getting a ton. So I kind of had to put everything together. I just love the, just how light it is. And, and I love wines with power as well, but this just kind of the whole, every, every step of the way, it was screaming elegant and a big inspiration for me on Pinot Noir was always the wines from Volnay. And I just think that those kind of beautiful, really pretty, elegant wines that, you know, are, I would describe it like a, you know, they're like a whisper, but the whisper is beautiful. You know, it's like, you know, I, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but that I would say was kind of the inspiration for taking on this site and saying, man, I feel like this is going to be the beautiful wine that I want, that I really love and lean into. That was before I knew that it was going to be a very cold year and start raining. And uh, <laughs> all the other was, challenges that you were It facing. was one of those things where, you know, you're like, all right, well, I'll do this. And then you're starting to look at, look at the juice chemistry as it comes in. And you're thinking, should I just make sparkling wine? Chris is going to lose his mind if we, if I tell him it's going to be three and a half years before we have wine out. That, that was kind of the, that's, that's the beauty of the site. And it's got, you know, one, one, five, one, one, three to get into the clones. Pomard. There's actually a couple of random plants of Chardonnay. So very Burgundian, not over 5%, you know, but like a couple random Chardonnay plants. And, you know, uh, there's a really unique kind of swale in the middle of the vineyard that, the, the acidity of those grapes is higher than on the, the kind of upper benches of the hill. And, you know, to me, I'm not going to separate that stuff out. I think that the site is what it is. And those, that, those acid donors are just beautiful. And I really believe in, in taking the things that were given and, and letting them go the route that they want to go, making sure that everything's clean along the way, which I guess is. It's clean. <laughs> What if, one of you had mentioned earlier that you don't make food friendly wines, you make dinner friendly wines. And I have to say, I'm so fortunate to have opened this bottle because I am pan roasting steelhead for dinner tonight. And I cannot imagine a better moving buddy. So this is going to be great. You're a man after my heart, Scott, because that's a, I think that's a, that's a beautiful pairing for sure. I'm almost afraid to try the Syrah. I mean, how do you top the Pinot? Put it away. Put it away. <laughs> Put it away. Late. Let's end on a good note. All right. I am pouring the Syrah. And this is the 2019 Lewis Vineyard Syrah. Now, this is from Columbia Gorge. Yes. A very... For our listeners who don't know where Columbia Gorge is. So the Columbia Gorge AVA is kind of encompasses a little bit of Hood River and then it goes almost to the Dalles on the Columbia, in the Columbia Gorge along the Columbia River. Um, this vineyard site is a very unique one. It's farmed by Lonnie Wright, who planted, I mean, everything uh, in the gorge. Um, he's got some hundred-year-old Zinfandel vines that I'm still bothering him to, to sell me fruit from, but I guess I'll have to send him some of this wine first. But uh, this vineyard is southeast facing 
uh, along Mill Creek. The vines are over 20 years old. He's he planted them. He's cared for them for 20 years. You know, it, it's a it's a really unique place, and I I do think that there are some really great things to come from that AVA as a whole. It's very different, and you know, for being only a couple, you know, fairly close in in distance to. Walla Walla, which also makes some incredible Syrah. This is just a different style of Syrah and I think is a beautiful region and has a, has a great potential. Good potential is a great description. So the bouquet on this is stunning. Blueberry compote, roasted meat, black pepper, just, uh, just super reminiscent of Syrah. I mean, you know what you're drinking. Absolutely. I, I don't think I would have ever guessed Columbia Gorge from this. I would definitely have, have tilted towards old world. It's just got this old world charm in the nose right off the bat. I have to say uh, in, in the mouth, in the mouth. And, and, and it's the same thing I'm gonna, I said about your Pinot Noir. The balance is pitch perfect and it's clean. There's just no flaws to this wine. My only regret is I wish I was drinking it in 10 years because this, this wine is going to be stunning, you know, as it goes through, you know, as it sort of loses the baby fat and really gets into, you know, some of those tertiary flavors that it's going to develop. You can tell right now it's going to be a great wine. Uh, Your problem is you don't have enough of it to put away (laughs) to, uh, to really say, I, guys, I'm seriously put away a couple bottles of, of this wine, and and maybe on your 10th anniversary, this would be a great a great way to celebrate. Because again, another super, I'm going to use your words, not mine, dinner friendly wine, right? I mean, this is this is a wine looking for a leg of lamb. I had the the luck to sit in on a, a lecture um, from the the very wow. famous and and inspirational winemaker Kathy Corson. Oh yeah. And, Love you Kathy. Know, it was, it was, it was during a time where I was learning a lot and was traveling through Napa Valley, getting to taste wines that I, um, you know, probably had no business actually tasting, but I got to hear her talk about acidity in and how it works together to create ageable wines. And that was, that was kind of a thing that, you know, I feel like I taste a ton of Syrahs and I think they're all beautiful and and wonderful. And I just like having that high acidity, regardless of what it is that we're making. Um, because I think that it carries through for food and for ageability. And, you know, the goal is never to make wines that last thousands of years, you know, if they do awesome. And I'm very excited, but you know, I also want you to be able to drink them right now and, and have it with your dinner. So as you're talking about acidity, I just took a bite of, of, I think, the margarita pizza Chris made and the acidity of the tomatoes and the creaminess of the cheese and the pitch perfect components in the Syrah are are just singing together right now. And I I don't know that I would have ever put (laughs) Syrah with margarita pizza, but a well-made wine with well-made food. It doesn't matter. I mean, this is just delightful, guys. I, I got to tell you, this is your first effort. My only advice is make more. We got what well, we got three or four times the amount coming next year. It's been a lot of it's been a lot of fun, and we've got we've got some visions of pairing these things the 
the, the, the foods we love, right. the wines we love and, and, and bringing them around the world. So it's, it's, uh, we're super thankful to be here to share it. How, how could listeners get a hold of these wines or can? Yeah. Yeah. They, as, as we mentioned, there's not a lot of it and we've been, we've been overwhelmed by the, the, the initial support from the futures pre-sale we did, but there is still some available. We've, we've sold over half in the first couple of months and we're probably going to put a stop to it. So we can put some away and have some to celebrate with in the years to come. But yeah, you can follow along on the project on dayleboo.com. So D-E-L-A-B-O-U-E.com. Um, we do have the pre-sale open there. So as I mentioned, labels are headed to the printer in the next week. We're shipping in the March, April timeframe. So available for pre-sale purchase on our website. And then the other place that we are trying to, you know, just share what we're doing and share what we're learning is on our Instagram handle, um, which is Dayleboo underscore wines. Very cool. guys. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure, a real pleasure. And, you know, I, uh, I can't thank the internet enough for bringing you and I together, Chris, and uh, Travis having Chris pull you into this. This has been a, an exceptional experience for me just because it was so unexpected. And Travis, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you about your nine lives, buddy. But you uh, keep doing what you're doing. Guys, thank you for being on the podcast. I genuinely appreciate it. I genuinely appreciate having the wines delivered and, of course, the pizza delivered. And here's to a very successful future. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for having us, Scott. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. This episode was produced by Sarah Beth Hensley, and the music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Liebowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, and remember, do good, drink well. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.